0: This podcast is brought to you by the GOSH Learning Academy. Hello, and welcome to Master the MRCPCH. In this podcast, we tap into the expertise here at Great Ormond Street Hospital, giving you an overview of a topic on the RCPCH curriculum. You may be revising for an exam or just fancy brushing up on a need to know topic. I'm Emma, an anaesthetic registrar and the Digital Learning Fellow at GOSH. Today I'm talking to consultant psychiatrist Dr. Sasha Evans about attention deficit hyperactivity disorder or ADHD. This topic is listed under the behavioural medicine and psychiatry sections of the RCPCH curriculum and could come up in the theory or the clinical components of the examination. Thank you for coming and speaking to me again today Dr. Evans Thanks for having me. So talking today about ADHD and what would you like people to get out of this podcast?
1: So I guess an understanding of the different ways that ADHD can present and how to assess it and an overview of, of how to manage it.
0: So what is ADHD and how many children are affected by it?
1: Okay, so I think about ADHD in quite a simple way. I'm quite a simple person I like to kind of break things down. ADHD presents with three core symptoms. So if we think about the ADHD, the attention deficit, so that's difficulties with focus or concentration or attention. The H is for hyperactivity, so we're thinking about those children or young people who can't stop leaving. So they struggle to sit in their seats. They might come into the clinic room and be fiddling with things or fidgeting and just really struggling to, to stay still and might need to move around a lot. And then the third part of it is the impulsivity. So it's the impulsive behavior, of course, but you might see things like them blurting out answers to questions or interrupting you constantly. So just that that struggle to kind of inhibit the bit of us that usually is able to to keep quiet. And in terms of diagnosis, it has to have been present for at least six months. And it has to be across all domains. So we can't just see it at home, for example, or at school. We have to see it in in more than one domain. And then the final part of it is the thing that we often say in mental health difficulties, is that it has to have had an effect on their functioning or be causing them some sort of distress or or disturbance or unhappiness. ADHD is really common and we have been seeing an increase in the prevalence, which might well be related to an increase in kind of awareness. It's definitely been on everybody's radar a bit more recently, but the The sort of prevalence that we usually talk about is about 3 to 5% in the UK. It occurs more commonly in males at the moment. And again, that might be related to the fact that it's a bit more difficult to diagnose in females or can be more difficult to diagnose in females. Across the, the world, there are... Like slightly different prevalence rates. So the lads said that there's a, a prevalence of around two to 7% with an average of 5%. And that might just reflect that people have slightly different thresholds for for diagnosis rather than a, a difference in actual prevalence. There's been this massive increase recently in adult ADHD and this sort of real increasing awareness of adults ADHD it I think previously it used to be thought of as something which kind of not disappeared but reduced going towards adulthood and I think that that kind of idea is slightly changing a bit and we're starting to think of it as something which kind of stays throughout life it's you know across all ages rather than just something that appears in childhood and then may remit as we get older.
0: Are there any risk factors that have been identified for the development of ADHD?
1: Yes, ADHD is really highly heritable. There's been lots of heritability studies, and the heritability is seventy-seven to eighty-eight percent. So it's it's hugely heritable. It runs in families. Gene-wide association studies have shown us that there are specific gene areas which cause ADHD. If we think about other risk factors so there are some of the risk factors which have been identified so being born prematurely can increase the risk of ADHD. so that's before the 37th week of pregnancy low birth weight, exposure to smoking alcohol or other toxins during pregnancy brain injury and then we commonly see it in looked after children and there are common comorbidities as well so we often see it with children who've had diagnoses of autism or epilepsy or mood disturbance and the other place that it's seen much more commonly is in the criminal justice system so lots of people in prisons are found to have ADHD.
0: And we've talked a little bit about the features of ADHD but when thinking about a child presenting with it are there any other signs or symptoms to be particularly vigilant for?
1: Yeah I think it's really important to kind of ask a range of questions clinically i kind of have like a bank of questions for each of the core symptoms so you'd be asking questions about how they get on in school how they get on with their homework do they make lots of mistakes in their homework but you also want to find out about play as well so are they able to sit down and watch a tv program or a film or something like that are they able to play a board game or do they get bored in the middle of it The one thing that's really important to note is that these children can often game for hours. So gaming isn't included in those activities that they can't generally sit down and do. And that's because they think that it involves a reward pathway. So when you game... Your reward pathway is stimulated, so it's actually something that that isn't affected by ADHD. So gaming isn't a question to be asked. The other questions that I find really helpful are around how they organise their activities. So, do they often forget their PE kit, or you know, do they get lots of detentions for forgetting things at school? Things like that are quite helpful. Another question that I I ask a lot is about whether they can manage a three stage command. So if your mom asks you to go upstairs and get your laundry, then bring it down and put it next to the washing machine, would you be able to manage that? Would they be able to manage that? Because it gives you a really good idea of of whether they're able to focus and sort of organise their activities. It tells you quite a lot about about how their, their brain is functioning. And oftentimes you'll get a mom who's like, no, I have to ask them like six times before they'll do it, or they'll go upstairs and they'll get distracted. ADHD is usually quite easy to to find out about because parents will kind of tell you how their child functions at home, and you can get a really clear understanding of, of a child who's got ADHD. The hyperactivity you can often see, so You know, if even if you're doing an assessment remotely, or if they're in the room with you, they are generally those children who just can't sit still, and they go into your drawers and they start playing and fiddling with things and fidgeting with things and putting their fingers in the fan and things like that. They just can't stop still, and you can often see that. And parents will also give you that kind of that story. They're often the children who talk a lot. So they just don't stop talking. You ask them a question, they give you loads and loads of information. And you have to kind of focus on what they're saying because they talk so rapidly. And the impulsivity, again, you'll often find out they can sometimes get in trouble at school because of their impulsivity. So shouting out answers in, in class, which gets them into trouble or, you know, saying something without thinking about it and will get them into trouble. And like, they can often be labeled as the naughty kids, which is really difficult. And it can be really difficult for both the child and the parents. But I think once you start realizing, oh, this is like ADHD, it, it kind of starts to make sense. So you can explain that to the young parents. And so that diagnosis can be quite helpful.
0: And I was going to ask: Is it the parents that tend to pick up these features? Is it the school? Is it a bit of both?
1: Yeah. So I think it's. It, I think it's really important to be both. We have to see it in multiple settings. Parents will often give you a good a good idea of what's going on, but it's really important to know that there's something going on in school. So we always will speak to school and either get them to fill in a questionnaire or we'll get some collateral information from them so that we know that there are difficulties experienced in both settings. I think that's really important. Sometimes at school we pick it up. Sometimes it's parents. School will often pick it up because of the difficulties of learning or that, you know, they'll notice that a child is kind of staring out the window or really easily distracted. And it's often that they're, their academic attainment is not in line with what they're capable of doing so that's a really a really good sign that that somebody's struggling at school and and there might be adhd
0: and is there a typical age for presentation so
1: this has changed a bit recently it it used to have to be before the age of 12 but now it is early to mid-childhood and again i think that's related to that kind of, we're thinking about it more as an all-age diagnosis rather than just a childhood diagnosis. But you generally want to see that there have been difficulties in that kind of early to middle childhood range. Like, you know, if somebody just started having difficulties later on, you, you would think less about ADHD.
0: What about minimum age? Because some of the features you describe sound like they could be quite developmental.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And I
0: I think I personally find
1: it quite hard to diagnose in, in that kind of like the very young age group. So that, you know, if, if a child's two or three, they're often just like running around and don't really listen and don't follow a three stage command. I think the important bit is kind of having an understanding of like the developmental, developmental, like age of the child and what they should be doing and how they like should be behaving according to their age group. So you are kind of comparing it to, to what's developmentally appropriate.
0: And then if you have a child presenting with suspicious features, how is a formal diagnosis of ADHD made?
1: The diagnosis is it was clinical. So it would be based on observing the child and observing their behavior and any impairments. You have to consider the severity of the symptoms as well. So again, it's that kind of mild, moderate or severe levels of impairment and symptoms. And it has to be really having a detrimental effect on them. So you have to have an understanding of of how it's impacting their life, you know. Is it making life difficult at school? Is it making their learning difficult? Is, is it having an effect on their friendships? And it, you have to do a film developmental and psychiatric history and, again, get those reports from school. They're really important. There are often questionnaires that can be used, and the one that I've used the most is the comments questionnaire, which you can give to parents, child, and to the teacher and score them up. There are other questionnaires which can be helpful. But the NICE guidelines are really clear that you can't just use the questionnaire to diagnose. They're just an aid to help you with, with diagnosis. And I find the DSM 5 and ICD 10 or 11 helpful for the diagnosis because they have to, if they're under 16, they have to have had at least six symptoms for DSM 5. Or if they're over 16, so 17 plus, they have to have at least five symptoms to meet the criteria. So I think it's helpful to kind of have an understanding of how many symptoms they've got on meeting those criteria to give the, the diagnosis correctly.
0: And is the diagnosis usually made by CAMS or can it be diagnosed by general or community pediatricians or GPs?
1: So as a broad rule, if children are below school age, they might have seen a community paediatrician more often than they would see a CAMS clinician. So I know the community paediatricians do make the diagnosis. In the adolescent group, that tends to be CAMS, but there are huge waiting lists at the moment for ADHD assessments. So again, if a child is known to a community paediatrician, they might well make that diagnosis. My understanding is it's, it it should be a specialist who makes the diagnosis rather than a, a, a general practitioner GP.
0: And so, when should a child with suspected or confirmed ADHD be referred to CAMS if they've been seen by paediatricians? So, if they are,
1: if they've got the symptoms and their functioning's impaired then referral to cans is appropriate, particularly if they're in that moderate to severe symptomology stroke impairment group. I checked the NICE guidance for this as well, they suggest a period of watchful waiting for 10 weeks first off, and offering parents or carers a, a parent support group in the first instance. So again... I think if a child has got symptoms, then there are strategies that can be put in place without necessarily having the diagnosis, and those are going to go a long way to, to helping the child or young person.
0: Okay, so I guess those strategies bring us nicely onto our final area, which is management of ADHD and what treatments are available.
1: Yeah, so first steps are thinking, it's about providing a kind of structured a supported discussion to to parents about the impact of the diagnosis so i guess thinking about like the potential risks of the of the diagnosis so thinking about that kind of impulsive and risky behavior and just making sure that, that, that that's managed and then i think the other thing is about providing parents with some help and support because i think sometimes these young people can be quite difficult to to keep on track and to get them to do their homework and things like that. It's it's about helping parents support the young person, so helping them with support, say, for homework and thinking about strategies to help them with that. So, for example, doing homework in short bursts, doing it early on in the evening. So, I don't know, a child, like, comes home, has a snack, gets their, gets their homework ready, and then they do I don't know, it can even be like five minutes or 10 minutes depending on the age of the child or 20 minutes and then letting them have a break. So it's thinking about giving them some structure and consistent boundaries as well are really important. So the child kind of has an understanding of what's expected of them and and it's supported to kind of achieve what they're able to there's lots of things that can be put in place in school as well so what we call environmental modifications so this is things like talking to the the senko or the special educational needs person at the school and thinking about putting things in place for that in person so it might be about sitting them in the right place in the classroom so that might be closer to the front so not letting them sit at the back where they can kind of drift off and and start you know thinking about something else or sitting them maybe to the side but a bit closer to the front so they're near to the teacher and giving them things like timeout cards so letting them letting them have a timeout if they if they're feeling like they need to move so giving them lots of movement breaks it's also about providing information to them in chunks which are manageable rather than like you know long periods of things which they've got to focus on, which are, are really difficult for them to do. And there's other things that that can help. So having fidget toys or I was talking to a young person this morning who liked to just have a ruler in class and just kind of like sit like bending the ruler just because it helped her focus. So it's about identifying what's going to help that young person in the first instance. So those are the kind of non-pharmacological ways of managing and there's there's lots and lots of kind of things that you can put in place there's also the medication which is used relatively commonly in the moderate to severe group. so you have got to be over five to to get medication we generally don't treat the the under fives and again they've got to be at least moderately impaired and you have to have tried the environmental strategies first so that would be the first protocol with all young people but if they're still struggling say so with their learning or with their behavior in class then you can try medications
0: and with the medications what medications are we talking about and how do they do we know how they work yeah so we've got quite
1: a good idea of how the medications to treat adhd work so really Broadly speaking, ADHD is caused by a a deficit of dopamine and catecholamines in the prefrontal cortex. So the bit of the brain which is responsible for organization and planning, but also the the bit of the brain. So there's some pathways which go to the striatum and the cerebellum. So they're they're involved in like motor planning and action. And also they're responsible for the inhibition of of our impulsivity so that kind of like the frontal lobe which stops us saying the things which are inappropriate sort of things that we shouldn't, shouldn't say so there's there's not enough dopamine and catecholamines like and in the in that area of the brain so we're essentially looking at replacing that or kind of increasing the levels i probably should say so first line is methylphenidate, which is a stimulant medication. And we know that that blocks the dopamine transporter. And so that just increases the levels of, of dopamine in the prefrontal cortex and the frontal striatal cerebellar tracts. So it increases that. And generally, I've seen really good results with it. So it improves focus and particularly helps with learning. And uh, One of the suggestions is that when you're starting those medications, that you kind of you get a parent to look at how they manage their homework like before and with the medication to see how well it's working yeah so there are different the thing about the medications is there's kind of short acting versions and long acting versions and it's about getting a it's about getting a regime that works for the child so the medications wear off the short acting ones can wear off fairly quickly so you have to kind of get the right dosing to achieve the optimum results. There are other medications as well. Like, so there's other stimulant medications like this dexamphetamine, which blocks the norepinephrine transporter and just dis- displaces norepinephrine from vesicles. And then we've also got some non-stimulant options, which might be appropriate for some other children. So we've got atamoxetine and we've got the alpha agonists like guanfacine and clonidine, which we can also, we can also try. those tend to be a bit later down the line we generally get good results with methylphenidate and this
0: Once a child has been started on medication how long do they typically have to take it for is it then a lifelong thing or is it something that they might stop needing you know when they get a bit older? It's a good question and I guess
1: I guess we used to Often stop the medication or taper the medication as people enters adulthood or late adolescence, or maybe felt that they didn't need it. I mean, I guess it's there's a kind of patient preference aspect to it. I think with the kind of increase in diagnosis in the in the adults, probably we're going to see more more people staying on those medications for the life.
0: Thank you. That was a really interesting overview of ADHD. Just to finish, we've got our standard quick-fire questions. So firstly, are there any classic exam questions that pop up about this subject?
1: So medication seems to be a a big question, so scientific basis of treatments for ADHD. I think probably because we have got quite a good understanding of what happens in the brain and ADHD and how the medications work. That's always a good question.
0: Secondly, are there any useful resources that you would recommend? So in terms of resources for
1: young people and families, I think the ADHD Foundation is really helpful and that has lots of short articles. In terms of assessment and management for the clinician, again, I'd be thinking about the DSM-5 chapter on neurodevelopmental conditions. It's really helpful thinking about symptoms and whether somebody meets meets the criteria for an ADHD diagnosis. And for treatment, I would be thinking about the NICE guidance. And also, as a counter-psychiatrist, I use the Morsley prescribing guidelines, which is, which is just brilliant for giving you some really good advice around prescribing. The other place is the mind Minded Psychoactive Medication page. That's really helpful in terms of thinking about medication too.
0: And finally, what are your three takeaway learning points about ADHD?
1: Okay, so my first one would be to make sure that you've got a bank of questions to assess the symptoms. So going back to those three core symptoms of inattention, hyperactivity, impulsivity, have some questions for each of those core features to, to get the symptoms out. Make sure you're thinking about different settings so don't just ask questions about home. make sure you're thinking about school and maybe other activities like scouts or like football and things like that do you see those behaviors then and just make sure that you ask about how it's affecting their lives and things like functional impairments and the impact on their life that's really important too
0: great thank you so much for that and for coming on the show again today
1: great thank you
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Master the MRCPCH. We would love to get your feedback about the episode and get your ideas for future topics that you would like to hear covered. You can find a link to our feedback page in the description for the episode, or email us at digital.learning at If you want to hear more about the work of the Gosh Learning Academy, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn, or visit our website at www.gosh.nhs.uk and search Learning Academy. We hope you enjoyed this episode and we'll see you next time. Goodbye.